Did you wear a new set of glasses this week? Last weekend, of course, I was wearing this beautiful blue set of glasses, and they, they worked quite well. I was able to not only see you, but read my sermon notes. Uh, a new set of glasses. Did you, did you live in light of the vision of the one seated on the throne? With our set of glasses, we're able to focus on images. And in the first century, um, living in the Roman Empire, disciples of Jesus, they were confronted with all kinds of powerful images. Images of Caesar, of course, on on coinage, and uh, gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, all kinds of images. Images of the military. Bombarded by images. And if they did not focus on the revelation given to them through the scriptures, and through the apostles, they would quickly be led astray by the things that were dominating their world. And if it was difficult for them to survive in that kind of world, how much difficult for us, more difficult for us today where we are bombarded by so many different images constantly? We're in this always-on, always-connected reality. I was reading one study this week about smartphone usage, and apparently uh, an average smartphone user will touch their phone about 2,617 times a day. That's a lot of touches. And if you're a heavy user of a smartphone, you'll touch it 5,427 times a day. So that's just your smartphone, and... With each touch and as you use it, images that come your way. And that's not counting, of course, what we see on billboards or if you play video games. There's all kinds of images. The images of of, of sports icons, uh, uh, brands. And in our world, it's more and more important, increasingly important to be focused. We can so easily become scattered in our thinking, shallow in our decision-making, just stressed out emotionally because no human being was created to handle so much information and so many images. How do we survive this flood of images in the 21st century? Marshall McLuhan, a great communications theorist, has written this, all media work us over completely. They leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, unaltered. And if that is true, then we desperately need to stop and focus on the graphic images presented to us by Revelation chapters 4 and chapter 5. If we only watch CBC, CTV, or whatever channel you watch, if we're only reading McLean's Time or whatever you're reading... If you're only being fed images by social media, then you will not understand what is happening in our day because those in the media, they may be doing their best, but most of them are not writing from the perspective of the throne room of God. And so the importance of stopping and meditating on what is being revealed to us through the scriptures in Revelation 4 and 5. And today we're going to focus on Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, this vision, it contains a great secret. Maybe you remember being on the playground and somebody whispered in your ear. If you want to capture somebody's attention, whisper. And if somebody whispered in your ear, immediately everybody around you wanted to know what the secret was. There's a secret because not everyone knows everything. A secret is something that's concealed, that's not seen by the overwhelming majority. 
We're all looking for secrets. We're looking for the secret for longer life, the secret for healthy relationships, the, the secret for financial stability, the, the secret for the real estate market. Oh, that would be great. The secret to winning the game of life. We're looking for secrets. What if someone came to you and said, hey, I have the secret that reveals what the whole human story is about. I have for you the great secret of history. Wouldn't you want to know that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you spoke to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos by your spirit. And we thank you that you asked John to write down what he was seeing. And we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word and that we can read it today. And that your Holy Spirit is present to enable us to to see and to understand and to show us how to live live in light of the vision in our day. And so we ask you for this grace. We ask you, Jesus, to teach us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So open your Bibles. If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1030. And I'll I'll just begin with the end of Revelation chapter 4. Of course, in Revelation chapter 4, John, there on the island of Patmos, he hears the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, come up here. And he passes through the door of heaven and he sees one seated on the throne and that one seated on the throne is like jasper and carnelian and there's a rainbow like emerald around him just this vision of radiance and majesty and from the throne there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and the sea around the throne is like glass and of course there are the four living creatures and the 24 elders representing the whole uh, redeemed people of God and they fall down in worship that's the scene of Revelation chapter 4, and it ends in this way, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God has created all things. Nothing exists apart from him. If he were ceased to exist, we would disappear. That's the vision of chapter 4. It continues in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John weeping? There's a scroll held firmly in God's right hand, his hand of authority. The scroll has writing on both sides of it. Normally only one side was used. So what's being communicated is that there's an overflow of words. There are many words. Much has been written. But the scroll is sealed with seven seals. In the time of the Roman Empire, these seals, they were used to validate a document, to authenticate it. Usually a a wax 
impression on this, the scroll itself. Uh, in Roman law, a will or testament, it was to be uh, sealed with seven seals, and that was to be done by seven witnesses. So here we have a will. We have a testament of who, who is the, the one uh, that, that, whose will is being reflected here. Well, it's God's sovereign will. It's God's plan for humanity, his plans for for judgment and for redemption. It's his plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's the destiny of the whole world. It's the meaning of your story, of my story. That's what's concealed. And a, a strong angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. In other words, absolutely no one. And John, he weeps. He weeps loudly. The word there is is the travail of mourning. It's wailing. He weeps. Why is he so traumatized? He's traumatized with despair because there's no angel. There's no spirit. There's no founder of some world religion. There's no spiritual guru. There's no person on earth, no world leader, no scientist, no professor. No one can open the scroll and reveal the story, what it's all about. No one can open the scroll and open the way for God to carry out his purposes. No one's worthy to reveal what God is doing, where we're going. No one can reveal the meaning of the story, how it will all end. And so John, he just weeps. And we are to stop and imagine what it would be like if that scroll were to remain sealed. We're just here. But no one knows what it's all about. No one can tell us where it's going. No one is worthy to open the scroll. You see, we can build bridges. We can build spaceships. We can develop an electronic system. We can invent the smartphone. We can write moving poetry. poetry. We can... uh, produce soul-stirring films. We can paint beautiful pictures. We can conceive and beget babies. But none of us can discover and implement the story. None of us can discover and implement the great secret of history. And so that's the great drama that we are to feel that the unfolding of history is actually concealed. John weeps. Now, it's often in the moment when we're weeping, when we feel desperate, when we're helpless, and we know that we we depend completely on God's intervention, very often that is the very moment when God reveals himself. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop weeping, John. Look, and there's that most frequent command of the book of Revelation again. Behold, look, there is one who can open the scroll. Hallelujah. Who is it? Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That title appears only here in all of Scripture. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob, the patriarch, is blessing his son Judah. And he says to Judah, hey, there, you are a lion who will rule. All peoples will bow before you. Salvation will come from the tribe of Judah for all peoples. 
not only the line of the tribe of Judah, but the root of David. And that title comes right out of Isaiah chapter 11. Let me read a few verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The one who can open the scroll is the promised Messiah. And if you read through Isaiah chapter 11, you see that the Messiah, he's going to judge with righteousness and with equity and with faithfulness, and he'll, he will be a sign for all people, and people from around the world will come to inquire of him. So there's the great relief. The lion can open the book of history, God's story. The lion can. And then John turns And he sees something shocking. And what we will now see is to change the way that we see everything on earth. You would expect that John would turn and that he would see the lion, but what does he see? Chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." Between the throne, that word between, it can be translated in the middle of or in the very center of. And so there's a lamb standing in the middle of the throne, in the very center of the throne of God. What's being communicated? Well, God the Father and the lamb are one. And what's very interesting is that the word for lamb is not the normal word that's used for lamb. Rather, we have the diminutive here, arnion, it's a little lamb. So you expect to see the lion and you see a little lamb. Is something wrong here? So many nations of the world, they have the lion as their national symbol, right? This image of power and majesty, of conquering. You can think about uh, England and, and Belgium and Bulgaria and Sri Lanka and Kenya. Many countries around the world, they have the lion as their national symbol. And if, if it's not a lion, then a tiger like France or a dragon like China or an eagle like the United States of America or a bear like Russia. But who has a little lamb for a national symbol? Why a little lamb? Eugene Boring, in his book on Revelation, has written this. This is perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. You see, there's nothing more intimidating than a lion and nothing less intimidating than a little lamb, helpless, vulnerable. The great shock is that the little lamb stands in the very center of the throne, The throne, of course, being the most dominant image in all of Revelation, and the second most dominant image being the lamb, the little lamb. Notice that the lamb had been slain, but now is standing in the middle of the throne. He has seven horns and seven eyes. The horn, of course, a symbol of immense power. The eye, a symbol of of wisdom. And so what do we have here with the seven horns and seven eyes? Well, John writes, they are the seven spirits of God. We have the Holy Spirit 
all of his wisdom and power, the Holy Spirit in his completeness, in his perfection, present with the Lamb, just as Isaiah prophesied. And so we have this beautiful graphic image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one. The little lamb in the middle of the throne slain, we have the crucifixion, but standing and so raised from the dead. And then you see in the passage that the Spirit is sent out to all the earth, and so you have Pentecost. Calvary, resurrection, Pentecost in one image. And the little lamb has the authority to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And when he does this, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they prostrate themselves before the lamb. They're carrying harps. They're worshipers. And golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are before the throne of God. Just this sweet, pleasing aroma to God. Prayers for the kingdom of con- to come. Prayers like that taught by Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are the prayers that you prayed this week? Those cries for help. Those prayers for people that you love. Where are they? Where are the prayers of those who have gone before us? Forgotten? Where are the prayers that we prayed today as we worshiped? The prayers remain before the throne of God, never forgotten. A sweet, pleasing aroma to our Father in heaven. And here, the little lamb is worthy to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne. He's worthy to open its seals. And then the secret is revealed. And the secret is in the worship of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They sing a new song. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This new song is just an explosion of worship that keeps building throughout the chapter. The great final victory of the kingdom of God has been won by the Lamb. By the lamb. And how has the Lamb won? The Lamb has won by being slaughtered. He has triumphed by going to the cross. Something has happened that no human being would ever think of. This is the greatest secret of history, the great paradox. The great secret is that the powerful lion is enthroned by becoming the sacrificial lamb. The little lamb, still bearing the wounds of slaughter, he stands in the middle of the throne, risen. He's triumphed over evil. He's now standing ready for action. And he and he alone can take the scroll from the Father's hand, break its seals, and receive authority to rule and judge the nations. Daniel, of course, the prophet Daniel, he saw this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw 
in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There's the great secret. All of history centers on Calvary, the slain lamb of God. Those who see that vision, those that understand what it means, they sing. The great mark of the Christian church around the world. Men and women sing. There's a people group in West Africa uh, called the Nanergay. And most of the Nanergay people are Muslim. But in recent years, a good number have come to faith. Some men came to understand the vision of the Lamb of God, the little lamb slain for their salvation. And so they confessed faith in Jesus and uh, decided that they would get baptized. So they went to their baptism. They got baptized. On the way home, they were walking. And one of the young man, men just burst out into song. And his grandmother was shocked. And so she said to him, what are you doing? And his response may offend some of our sensitive ears, but this is literally what he said. I'm singing, woman. Get used to it. So in a tribe where men have never sung, they now sing. Traditionally in that tribe, only women sing. But because a man has come to faith in Jesus, he has a song to sing. He has a new song. What does that mean for us? Well, because the lamb died, he was able to ransom with his shed blood people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, from everywhere. And deliver them from God's judgments on humanity. So Koreans and Japanese and Chinese and Indians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Europeans and Africans and Latin Americans. It is for everyone. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He sacrificed his life because it was the only way that we could be saved. And he did it out of love for all of us. The apostle Peter, disciple of Jesus, writes this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus, the lion and the lamb, worthy to break the seven seals, standing in the middle of the throne, reigning right now, ready to execute the purposes of God. And this revelation, of course, it places before us the most crucial question for each one of us. To whom will we look for salvation and healing? Who do we really believe can break the, soul, the, the, the seals of that scroll and reveal to us the meaning of all of history? You know, we have a hard time opening up our own scroll. We have a hard time understanding our own story. A Filipino illustrator, illustrator by the name of Terence Duarte, 
he engaged in a really innovative project. He traveled the globe for 100 days. And as he did that, he drew people. But the, the agreement was this, I will draw you if you will share with me your secrets. And so as he drew, people shared their secrets. You can go online and see this for yourself, Terence Eduarte. Not now, after. <laughs> Here's one secret. I overdo things and I constantly make myself the center of attention because I'm terrified of being forgotten. Here's another secret. I was born into a culture that never accepted me, born to an Arab father and a European mother. I'm constantly fighting two sides of my identity. Anxiety and depression have completely taken over me. Here's another secret. To this day, only my boyfriend and I know that I was pregnant at age 18. Not even my poem on a bathroom door was interpreted correctly by strangers. The secret continues to be safe between us and the hotel room where it ended. Secrets shared in exchange for drawings. We have a really hard time entrusting our story to others, right? Especially our secrets. Because we just have been hurt too many times along the way. But the good news is that Jesus the Lamb, he already knows our secrets. He already knows our sins. He knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And even though he knows, he gave his life for us. Romans 5 verse 8, while we, were yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to merit salvation before he came. He didn't wait until we were worthy to die for us. He died for us while we were far from him. When we weren't even thinking about him. He knows that we have sinned. He knows what it means to be vulnerable. He knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to suffer. And he died because of our sin and brokenness. He went to this cross and he took the punishment that really was ours and he absorbed our sin, our pain, and our suffering. So the great news is that Jesus offers a great salvation, forgiveness, healing, and life is offered to all peoples, to all who surrender to him. To all who lay their hearts bare before him. Who say, Jesus, you know my secrets already. You know my sin. I need your salvation. I need you to enter my life and change me. I need to know your forgiveness. And to all who surrender to him, he offers freedom from guilt, forgiveness for sin. He offers the removal of shame, a new identity, sons and daughters of God. He offers to dispel our fears, power to not sin, victory over death, authority over the evil one. That is all ours if we are in Jesus. Jesus not only opens the story of the nations, but he opens your story, my story, reveals its meaning within his story. You're not here by chance. No, created by God. According to Ephesians, his, God's masterpiece. And in G Christ Jesus, God has purposes for you that he has planned from before the foundation of time, the beginning of time. Jesus, the lamb out of love, died for you. He took upon himself your sins and by his wounds, Peter writes, you can be healed. Peter experienced that healing. That healing is there for all who surrender to Jesus. He can be trusted. 
So if you have never, ever entrusted your heart to Jesus, I would encourage you to do that now and to receive his healing. Pray with me. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. Jesus, thank you that you came out of love for me and that you gave your life, that you died on a cross 2,000 years ago, that I might be saved, that my sins might be forgiven. Thank you for taking my sin upon yourself, paying the price I could never pay. Thank you that you offer to me today restoration, a new relationship with God, healing, eternal life. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I turn from my independent ways. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. And I ask you, Jesus, to do a work in me that I just cannot do. I need you. By your Holy Spirit, change me. Transform me. Make me the person that you want me to be, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, please talk to the person who brought you or go to the Welcome Center. Come forward. Talk to me. would love to encourage you today. You know, if we keep on reading in the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 14, and we read that there are people that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so it's a beautiful image. If we are following Jesus, what do we take home today? Well, first of all, The greatest power in the universe is the power of sacrificial love. The greatest wisdom in the universe is the wisdom of sacrificial love. The Apostle Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So the road to life eternal is often laced with sacrifice. We do the experience the joy of following Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit, empowerment to live, the power of the resurrection, as Paul writes. But we also fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. And so if anyone says to you, hey, start following Jesus and it's going to be all okay. Just happiness And more happiness. Yeah, there is tremendous joy in following Jesus. But there is sacrifice. And so the great calling remains the same for us to deny ourselves. And to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We're called to embrace the wisdom of God, the power of God. And why? Because he has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. We are full members of the kingdom of God. We are sons and daughters of King Jesus. That's our new identity. We get that identity from the ruler of the universe and as God's people, we do live from a place of victory because Jesus is on the throne and as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. He has made us to be priests. We're mediators of God's blessing, channels of God's blessing. At least that's our calling. To love people as Jesus does. To mediate God's blessing to those that are enslaved by sin, by the world, by Satan. To bring the world to the throne. To pray, as we did earlier for Iran and for China and for Canada, for people around the world. Because God loves all people. And we witness to the truth of who Jesus is. The lion and the lamb. Through our lives, through our words. 
So the great purpose, followers of Jesus rule with him and impart God's blessing. We rule with him and we impart God's blessing. And then the vision continues, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven words, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Why seven? Because the lamb is worthy of complete praise. And then there's a third explosion of worship, verse 13. That last explosion of worship, of course, being just thousands and thousands of angels worshiping. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And so the four living creatures are worshiping. The 24 elders are worshiping. There are thousands and thousands of angels worshiping. And now every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, worshiping. Heaven and earth united in praise and adoration. The whole universe, a temple of worship. And in response to this magnificent scene, the four living creatures shout, Amen! And the redeemed people of God lie prostrate and worship. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, God has exalted Jesus so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the beautiful thing is that we're invited to join in. This is our great joy to join the throng before the throne and worship to worship. All of history is heading toward the feet of the Lamb, but our great joy in this moment is to bow now and worship. As the song says, one day every tongue will confess you are God, one day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who choose you now. And so for all who have chosen to bow the knee now. Let's enter into the great joy and worship. CJ will lead us. CJ.